Deuteronomy chapter 29 as we continue through Deuteronomy together. We come now to this section, really chapters 29 and 30 uh, begin sort of a new uh, speech of Moses here. Again, as we've said, a series of sermons Moses is giving here on the border of the promised land, preparing the new generation about to go in and to take over the land that God had promised them. And the theme, of course, of all of these sermons, as we've seen, have been obedience. And once again, we come to another section where you'll notice there, as there has been all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, a lot of repetition, a lot of restating of things that God has already said before. It reminds us of even what Paul said in the New Testament when he was writing the Philippians. And Paul said, it's not tedious. The idea is not bothersome for me to write the same things to you, Paul said, but for you it is safe. In other words, Paul was saying, listen, I don't consider it a bother to restate and to tell you some of the things that I know that you already are aware of. You already understand these things. The Philippians had heard some of the truths that Paul conveyed to them before, but rather than Paul being so concerned about teaching them something novel or creative or new, he was restating a lot of the truths that they already knew. And Paul said, for you, that's safe. And there is something very very safe about being able to hear certain things restated in our lives the value of repetition and reinforcing things whether it be in sports that's helpful to have the basics reinforced continually uh, or whether it be in the spiritual life the same way as we run our race to have things restated and we need to keep in mind as well that in this day and age certainly the levites uh, the priests, they had a copy, a, if you would like we would, a written copy uh, of some of the portions of the Old Testament scripture. But uh, many of the common people in that day, they greatly relied upon their memory because they didn't have the privilege like you and I to have one, two, maybe three, four, five Bibles, different translations. It was a treasure to have a copy of the Word of God. And so because of that, the people greatly relied upon their memories. So a lot of times because of that, the rabbis, the teachers would purposely, through oration, restate things so that they would be ingrained in the minds and the hearts of the people to remember the ways of God and to help them and to keep them safe and on track in their relationship with the Lord. Now, chapter 29 and 30 basically is sort of Moses now, uh, God through Moses, calling the people to renewal of their covenant relationship with God. Again, he's already given them the covenant back, the Mosaic covenant beginning back at Mount Sinai. We've been studying this through the chapters and books that we've gone through so far. And now God here, as they're about to cross over with Joshua, is sort of calling them to a renewal renewing of that covenant relationship between them and God. So we see almost sort of a, a restating of a lot of the things we've looked at. He says, verse 1 of chapter 29, <clears throat> these are the words of the covenant which the Lord God commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab. So again, the land of Moab, keep in mind, is the eastern shore. This is the other side of the Jordan before they would enter into the promised land. That's where they're at now. So these uh, words of this covenant are being reinforced here. Besides, he tells us, the covenant which he made with them in Horeb, which is a reference to the area of the Mount Sinai, that mountain range 
arranged there where Moses originally gave uh, the covenant to the people as God gave it to him. Now again, keep in mind, when we read the word covenant, we see it stated throughout this chapter a number of times. Uh, the word covenant is basically just a term that means an agreement, uh, typically an agreement between two people where uh, there are certain promises made, there's an agreement of terms, uh, who's responsible for what, and so God is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. And this is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with the people according to the law. Uh, one thing certainly different about the Mosaic covenant and the Old Testament covenant was greatly dependent upon the people's obedience. It was a, if you do this, then God will do that. If you obey the Lord, then these blessings and experiences will come upon you. <clears throat> the wonderful thing for you and I is Jesus comes upon the scene and Jesus said, I didn't come to set aside the law, I came to fulfill it. And because Jesus fulfilled the law, and then after even fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in his sinless, perfect, righteous life, Jesus, the Bible says in the New Testament, then died and in a sense experienced the curse of the law, that is all the curses of the things that would come upon those who violated the law of God, Jesus then embraced all those things as well, taking the full punishment of that so that he could then say to us, this cup is a new covenant now in my blood shed for you. And he says, and, and this is for the remission of sins. And now Jesus offers to you and I a new covenant that's not based upon conditional obedience. If you obey, then these blessings will come upon your life. The new covenant is based upon the grace of God and our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not if you do this, it's if you believe that this was done. If you believe that this was done by Christ, that he lived out the righteous requirement of the law that you could never live because we always fall short of the standard. If you believe that Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, then you realize you don't have to keep the law yourself. If you realize that Jesus died for the punishment and the curse of the law, suffering on your behalf, then you realize that even though you're a lawbreaker like I am, that Jesus absorbed the punishment for us and therefore we can be forgiven and have a righteous standing with God. So the new covenant is based upon what was done for us and our faith and our confidence in that. And we experience the blessings we do from God because of our belief in that covenant of the finished work of Jesus. So very different, keep in mind, the new covenant from the old covenant. And I don't know about you, but it makes me glad that I'm not under the old covenant <laughs> as you look at these things here. So again, this is the, the renewing of this covenant now. Verse two, now Moses called, notice, all Israel. And he said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. So notice he begins by reminding this generation. Again, remember they were at this time children when these things took place in Egypt. This was the younger generation. The older generation has died off as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. But he reminds them, though they at this time were probably, you know, we could say maybe somewhere probably within 30 to 60 years old or 40 to 60 years old, this generation now as their parents have died off and they've wandered in the wilderness. He says to them, yet you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes. You saw the miracles of God in Egypt, the, the plagues that God brought and the ways that God showed his 
power. And, and again, remember each time God orchestrated one of those plagues and those ways that he worked among Pharaoh and his servants in his land, the great trials, he says, the signs and the great wonders. Remember, every time God would make the statement that Pharaoh may know that I am God, that there is no other God besides me. And again, each time God showed his power and demonstrated those signs, it wasn't just to show off, to make a signs and a wonder show. The purpose of those miraculous works of God were revelation. God wanted that sign to signify something about him, that he was the one true and living God, that people might see truly past the sign and to see God himself to recognize God for who he was. Why? That they might come into relationship with God. This was the heart of God. So he reminds them, Look, you have seen the signs, the miracles, the great wonders that were done. The tragedy was, verse four, he says, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. The problem was that the people, though they saw those things, many of them had not yet put genuine faith in God which is just another reminder and an indication that just seeing a miracle alone with the physical eye is no guarantee or assurance that genuine faith will come about because Pharaoh and all the Egyptians saw the same miracles that the Israelites did and they didn't necessarily put faith and they didn't yield themselves over to God. And many of the Israelites, sadly, because of their heart condition, they saw it with their eyes, but they didn't see with the eyes of their heart. They didn't understand they didn't perceive what these things were intended to indicate, to point to the need of God. They, they heard the words, if you would, with their ears, but they didn't really listen to what God was trying to say to them. And, and this is a very likely heart condition that can happen to anyone. In a sense, it, it describes here really something that was the consequence of their heart being rebellious and not in the right place before God. Listen, listen to what Ezekiel says in chapter 12. It kind of helps us understand this. It says in Ezekiel 12, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst, notice, of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see, but does not see. In other words, they're able to see, but they don't really want to see. They have ears to which they can hear, but they don't hear for they are a rebellious house. In other words, it was the condition of their heart that inhibited their ability to see what God was trying to show them. It was the rebellious hardness of their heart, the unbelief in the human heart that caused people to hear the same information, but some heard what God was saying and others did not hear what God was saying. Jesus refers to this in a similar way even in his day in Matthew chapter 13, he makes reference to this same type of thing. Let me just read it to you quickly before we move on. Jesus in Matthew 13 says this. He says, therefore, he says, whoever has to him more will be given and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have what he has even will be taken away. Therefore, I speak to him in parables because Jesus says, seeing they don't see. In other words, it's evident but they choose not to see it. They don't want to see it, the idea is. Hearing, yet they do not hear, nor do they understand. They hear the same message. They hear the word of God. They hear what, what you know is being proclaimed, but they don't want to hear it. It's a heart condition. 
that causes that to come to pass. And Jesus says, hearing you will hear and not understand, seeing you will see but yet not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, God says, so that I should heal them. So this was a very problematic thing that happened with Israel at this time where because they didn't want to see, they didn't see what God was trying to say because some of them didn't want to hear. And despite all that God had done, which again is just a a very clear reminder that miracles in and of themselves don't bring faith. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The writer of Hebrews says that the same people heard the word of God, the gospel message, but it did not profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith in the hearing. So the heart condition is critical in this. Do I really want to hear what God's saying? Do I really want to see what God's trying to show me? That makes all the difference in the world. And this is what Moses is alluding to here. He says, yet to this very day, you don't perceive, you're not hearing. He says, verse five, and I have led you 40 years... In the wilderness, your clothes have not worn out on you. I guess they were probably out of style after 40 years, but your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. So again, the picture there, miraculous preservation. No, I don't know how many dads in the room. I love that. 40 years, same pair of shoes, same clothes the day you start out the journey. I mean, that would make my life simple. There's not a lot of options in the closet. One pair of sandals, one robe. Listen, that's worked for the past 35 years. Put it on. Let's march the next route. You know, there'd be no problems with getting ready and this and that. I mean, like I said, you know, I'm sure they complain. Well, but this isn't out of style for 30 years. But hey, everybody's wearing the same thing for 40 years. I mean, the picture here is miraculous preservation. Imagine that truly wandering in a desert wilderness, one garment, one pair of shoes, and God preserved them. He took care of them. He made what little they had last. And you know what? God is a miracle working God. And it is amazing how if we're truly grateful that God can give us just enough to where we can be content and appreciative. And it is amazing how God can even make what little we have last longer than it's supposed to. And he says, look, I know that's all you have, but watch how far I can stretch that because I'll preserve it. I'll take care of you. And again, there's just this beautiful miracle work of God. If you think about this, what this must have been like for them, still wearing the same garments, still wearing the same sandals. They never wore out on their feet. Verse six, you have not eaten bread, God says, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink that again, here's why God did these things, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. There the picture, you've not eaten bread or drunk wine. The idea is, is that they did not need to plant uh, fields to, to yield grain for their bread. They, you know, they didn't have to, to create vineyards. Again, why they couldn't do this, they were journeying through the wilderness. They were, they, they were a people who were constantly moving. And God says, the idea here is that you didn't do, need to do any labor to take care of yourself. They didn't need to plant fields and create their own grain to produce their own bread. Why? Because God made manna fall from heaven every single day. Every, God provided for them miraculously. Water came forth from a rock. 
And what God is trying to say is, I sustained you for 40 years and you didn't have to labor or do anything. And again, keep in mind what this was like for this younger generation as they grew up. All they ever knew was every day. I mean, imagine this begins to happen when you know, uh, little Simeon's five years old and all he's known for 40 years when he was 40 to 45 was you go out there in the morning and this stuff's laying there. It's called manna. You gather it up before the sun comes and it gets all nasty and gross and then you bring it in and you make food. And every day, God provided. God provided. And here God's just reminding them how he preserved them. He provided. Again, his faithfulness. God's calling them to remember and reflect upon his faithfulness. He's saying, think about it. Look back over your life how I protected you and preserved you and provided for you in such miraculous ways. I always took care of you. I made sure you had exactly what you needed. I even made it easier for you than it needed to be at times. In his graciousness, again, calling them to remember the faithfulness of God as he worked in their lives, showing his favor, revealing himself to them. And he says, verse 7, And when you came to this place where they were, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og of Bashan, remember those giant-like men who were leading kingdoms, he says, they came out against us to battle and we conquered them. Again, God gave them success in their endeavors. That was miraculous. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, those who remained on the eastern shore. So again, God is just calling them before he asks them to be responsive and saying, listen, think about all I've done for you. Really think about it. Think about all the ways I've taken such good care of you. I've shown myself faithful and powerful and, and helped you at every turn, whatever the need was, material or, or conquering your enemies or whatever came into your life, the obstacles, I always took care of you. I showed myself faithful and revealed myself to you he says, therefore, in light of that verse 9, therefore, notice, responsive, therefore, in light of that, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. So again, notice the Jews, they were just responders. God's saying, I'm the initiator here. The scripture tells us in the New Testament, the same thing in 1 John, it says, we love him because he first loved us. That's how it's supposed to be because love's a powerful motivator. And it's as we experience the love of God, it makes us want to love and live for God in return. God always calls us to relate to him in that way. God never expects more of us than what he has first done for us to a much greater magnitude. So he says, therefore, in light of all I've done, I'm asking, he says, keep the words of this covenant and do them. And notice there's a difference there between knowing the words of the covenant and keeping the words of the covenant. He, he says there, keep and do. It's one thing for them to know the word of God. He didn't say know the word of God and, and you'll prosper and be successful. He didn't say read these words or hear these words. He said, obey them. Put the word of God into practice. And he says, if you put the word of God into practice, then you will prosper in all that you do. There's a distinct difference there. A lot of times we think just because we've heard the word of God or we've read the word of God or we know the word of God because we've heard it and read it so many times that that's what it requires to, in a sense, experience a, a fruitful, successful 
spiritual life. Again, they entered into a promised land. We are supposed to enter into a promised life of the Spirit where we experience prosperity and fruitfulness in the spiritual life. And be careful that you don't begin to think that that comes from just because you know a lot about the Bible. God says, no, live out what the Scripture says. As you put faith into practice and you obey and you keep what you read and what you know, that's when you begin to experience the power of God and spiritual fruit and prosperity begins to come, even as they would prosper in direct proportion to their obedience to God and keeping his word. So again, God wants them to prosper and God wants us to prosper in our spiritual lives as we obey his word. We'll experience that to the greatest extent. Verse 10, he says, all of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp and the one who cuts wood to the one who draws your water. So again, all the people, the families, the clans, the fathers, the mothers, the children, uh, those who are foreigners, the you know, the, the, from other nations that have sort of you know, sort of come together with Israel, who God said, embrace the foreigner, be a witness to them, take them in, be compassionate. They fleed from other nations where it was harsh, where they were living, love them, embrace the alien, the foreigner. God said, and, and he, he just ranges here from the leaders all the way to those who are doing the most minuscule tasks in the camp gathering wood and drawing water he says all of you he says verse 12 together enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God makes with you today that here's why God says that I may establish you today as a people for himself God wanted Israel to be established and not just for their sake but to be established ultimately for his sake, that they might be a testimony of what a life is like and a people are like when God is ruling over them, when their God is the Lord, that he might establish you as a people for himself, that he may be God to you, just as he has spoken to you, just as he has sworn to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 14, he says, and I make this covenant and this oath, notice, not with you alone, that is not just with the people who were standing there that day, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. The idea is future generations. God says those Jews that were there currently, as well as the future generations that would rise up in faith, for you know, he says, you remember, that we dwell in the land of Egypt and that we came and passed through the nations which you passed by and you saw, he reminds them, their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold. He reminds them that they were aware. They had seen how other nations entered into idolatry, how they worshipped foreign gods made of wood and stone and and God reminds them how they were aware of these idolatrous things, which would be very tempting for them to be curious about. Hey, how do they worship their gods? And, and maybe we should participate in some of their practices and, and how this would be a, a constant temptation as they lived among the world, but yet to live outside of that, in a sense, live separate lives, to be in the world, but not of the world in their practices. So he says, you've seen the other nations, you saw their abominations, what they do, but he says, warning, verse 18, so that there may not be among you, that is among Israel, notice, a man or a woman 
or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. So he cautions here against the danger, notice, of one man or one woman or then maybe a family or a tribe that he says begins to turn in their heart away from the Lord and go and serve other things. Again, this shows us, first of all, that God understands the human capacity and that we are all capable of turning away from the Lord. In the same way, we're thankful that God got our attention and we turned to the Lord initially. God understands that we have free will and that we are able to turn away from the Lord. You know, I love that hymn, one of my favorite hymns that we sing, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Doesn't that sound like a strange statement together? Prone to leave the God I love? Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it for thy courts above. Again, the, this understanding that we have the capacity and, and, and we are magnetically drawn to what is wrong and to what is sinful and to turn away from the Lord. And God knows this propensity exists in every man, in every woman. He says in every family and even in every tribe, a, a group of families, a community, the ideas. And notice how God understands that this can be something where all it takes is just one person to begin the process of a larger group beginning to turn away from God. He says, lest this begin to happen and that there may be among you, notice verse 18, a root of bitterness or wormwood. The wormwood is, is poison. So, so he says, lest this root get sunk down into the soil and, and something become rooted from one person. All it takes is just one person to begin to turn away from the Lord in their heart and a root goes down into the soil that begins to produce bitter, rotten fruit that begins to affect a greater populace of people because one man turns away in his heart from the Lord and then all of a sudden that begins to make his wife vulnerable to doing the same thing. Or if a woman turns away from the Lord, that begins to make her husband more vulnerable to then join in doing the same thing. And then if a family turns away from the Lord, that then creates the, the potential and temptation of another family seeing that family and being drawn in maybe to the same temptation and sin or just being disheartened and then they turn away from the Lord and one by one incrementally then becomes a tribe and then ultimately becomes an entire nation. And that's all it takes. And God knows the danger of this so God warns, notice, each individual was responsible because it had an effect upon the collective group of all the people in the nation. So every person in a sense was accountable to one another and, and, and were in a sense obligated to to be their brother's keeper because if you turn away from the lord you may be the first step towards sinking down a root of something poisonous and unhealthy that would defile and pollute a lot of other people around you and so here god cautions that they were to be on guard against this that hearts wouldn't begin to turn away because of the effect that it would have upon others. And notice verse 19, the emphasis of how it just takes the wrong attitude in one heart. Verse 19, and so it may not happen, God says, that when he hears the words of this curse, that is this individual whose heart is turning away from the Lord, 
They hear the words of the curse, which we studied in the last few chapters, the curses that come from rebellion and disobedience to God and his word, that he blesses himself in his heart. The idea is secretly on the inside saying, this is his thought process, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard, God says, could be included with the sober. So God says this, this is the dilemma. When a person's heart begins to turn away from the Lord, they begin in a very self-deceived manner to begin to tell themselves that though God says, if you live that way, it won't work. If you live that way, you will bring a curse upon yourself and your family and others. If you begin to live that way, that will have consequences. But yet the self-deceived rebel says, listen, I mean, I, I hear, but that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me. I mean, yeah, maybe some people out there, but not, I'm going to be okay. And they bless themselves and they believe, yeah, I mean, I know that happens to some people, but I'm not going to go that far. And, and, and I, I kind of have my own standard of, of righteousness and I know what God's word says, but that doesn't really apply to me directly. And they, they convince themselves wrongly by believing that somehow they can do what's wrong and they can follow the dictates of their own heart and yet nothing will come as a result of that and everything will just be fine. And God says that is a dangerous self-deception. A dangerous, dangerous self-deception where people convince themselves somehow the consequences won't come to pass and, and that they can somehow have peace and be blessed even though they're following the dictates of their heart. And God says, absolutely not. That's a dangerous self-deception. It's part of what happens is a person's heart begins to turn away from the Lord. Their mind begins to become very confused. And it's interesting to me here that God even relates this. He says, as though the drunkard could be included, be one with the sober. Uh, to me, that's an interesting statement because when somebody's drunk, what's the indication? When they're drunk, their inhibitions are lowered and their judgment's all impaired. Isn't that the case that when somebody becomes drunk, their, their inhibitions are lowered and their judgment about it, how they see everything and handle everything, whether they're driving or they're dialoguing or making choices, their judgment is drastically impaired. They make very poor decisions because they have poor judgment because of the influence of being drunk. And when a person begins to want to follow the dictates of their own heart, let their heart dictate what's right and wrong, what's acceptable and not acceptable, God says that's like a drunk person. Their judgment is really off. And they have no idea the risk that they are running themselves and the risk, like a drunk driver, that they're posing to everybody else whose life may ultimately be threatened because of their condition and their turning away from God. Verse 20 says, the Lord would not spare him. Again, God says there's no special exceptions. They may think they'll get away with it, but God says, I don't grant exceptions. I'm not an impartial God. He won't bless sin and disobedience. He can't. He's a just God. The Lord would not spare him for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against the man and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him as God said it would. And the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven, the potential to lose his life. Even sin can cause and run that risk. You don't live the way God intends. You take yourself out from under the covering of God's protection and sin can lead to death if someone's not careful it certainly can and the Lord would separate him from the tribes of Israel adversity according to all the curses 
of the covenant that are written in this book of the law so that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say when they see the plagues of that land and the sicknesses which the Lord has laid on it as people observe the problems happening among Israel the whole nation they would say or the whole land excuse me is brimstone and salt and burning again brimstone and salt and burning pictures when you put salt on soil it destroys its ability to be fertile and productive it ruins soil and this is what they're seeing the land that has now been ruined it is not sown nor does it bear nor does any grass grow there it's like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah Adma and Zeboim the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. And all the nations would say as they looked upon the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, why has the Lord done so to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? In other words, the people would look and say, what happened? These people were so blessed. They were so prosperous. This was once a land flowing with milk and honey and now it's like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like a land, you know, polluted with salt and it's not sown and it's not productive and no longer is it prospering the way it once did and 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 what happened what why has god brought such fierce judgment upon this land and upon these people what does this great anger mean verse 25 the answer would come and then people would say because here's why they have forsaken the covenant of the lord god of their fathers which he made with them and he brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord, verse 28, uprooted them from their land in anger, in wrath and in great indignation and he cast them into another land as it is to this day. So the very things that God forewarned would happen if they disobeyed God. The land would begin to struggle and then ultimately if their obe or disobedience persisted, God would ultimately uproot them from the very land that he brought them into and he would retract the blessings back from them. Again, the land, keep in mind, ultimately, hear me out, the land ultimately really doesn't belong foremost to Israel. It belongs to God because God says the world is mine and all the fullness thereof. The land of Israel belongs to Israel because God gave it to the nation of Israel. They're God's tenants and God said, that's who I'm giving it to. But in the same way, God let them be tenants of the land and drove the other people out, the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Perizzites who were filthy, vile people doing grotesque things and God used Israel to judge them and then he gave them occupation of that land. God said, listen, I'm not a God of partiality. And in the same way, if you become defiled and filthy in your practices and you rebel against me and turn away from me, God says, I can take you out of the land as quickly as I put you into it. You know, it's like the old Bill Cosby thing. I took, put you into this world and I can take you back out. And, and, and sometimes the Lord needs us to realize that. Look, I brought this blessing into your life and, and I can bring it out of your life real quick too. And so here, this reference is made to people when they would see the land of Israel. Remember, 722 BC, the, the northern kingdoms taken to Assyria, captured. Later, 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah, 
taken into Babylonian captivity. Eventually, they then come back to the land. But then later on, once again, with the time of Rome and then 70 AD and the land being taken over. And numerous times, the Jews have been uprooted and pushed out of their land. It's happened multiple times historically. And the people would look upon the land and say, what happened? Why is this? The land now seems so defiled. You know, it's interesting as it refers here to the land, what God is trying to indicate is how really the land that Israel was dwelling in, the land served as a testimony of their relationship with God. It was an outward testimony. And in the same way, our lives are supposed to be an outward testimony to our relationship with God. And the land, when it was struggling and suffering, was a testimony that they had turned away from God, that they had rebelled from God. And because of that, the land had suffered, the people had been uprooted. You know, it's interesting as he describes the land being barren and desolate. You know, even in the 1800s, not too long ago, nobody cared about that land, which we know as Palestine or where Israel currently is today. Nobody cared about that land and when the Zionist movement then in the late 1800s began having an interest again in the land, they bought the land from the Arabs for ridiculously cheap prices. And the reason why because of that was because it was a land in terrible condition. It was nothing but swampland. It was barren swampland and they got the land for extremely cheap. The amazing thing is because it was so unproductive and worthless, but yet God by his grace when the Jews return to their land, has miraculously restored and replenished that land and given them incredible wisdom and insight how to take a land that was worthless, profitless, no one really even cared about because it was swampland, and now it is some of the most fertile, productive, fruitful land on the globe in a very short period of time because God miraculously restored the land as his people returned to it in, in a sense, in, in a partial way. And that will only increase in a greater sense when the complete fulfillment of that remnant returning comes to pass in the latter days. Verse 29, interesting verse here. Look at it. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Here's the reason why. That we may do all the words of this law so interesting little statement here the secret things the things which are unknown belong to the lord we have to always remember that there because god is infinite and we are finite is always going to be a gap between what god knows and understands and what we know and understand i mean god's revealed a lot to us he's revealed plenty enough to keep us busy sufficient enough for us to know what we need to know to have a relationship with him to know understand things about heaven and hell and certainly from a new testament perspective we have much greater revelation even than they did prior to the time of the cross many of the mysteries of the faith have been revealed to us they've been unveiled the idea of christ in us that the holy spirit could dwell within us the the church is a great mystery of how God would accomplish this thing of Jews and Gentiles as one family spiritually. So we've come to know a lot, but there are always going to be certain things in a sense which are, are, are secretive in the sense that God knows that we don't yet know and fully understand. Mysteries. And he says here, those things that we don't know, they belong to the Lord because he's God. And there are certain things he will always know because of who he is that our finite minds won't fully grasp. But those things which are revealed... The idea is the things which are made plain, which are clear and evident, the clearly revealed things of God, his word, his truths, they belong to us and our children. And here's the reason why, that we may do them. 
So God says, there may be things that you don't know, but the things that are clearly revealed, they're revealed to obey. They're revealed to be observed and to be, to be you know, addressed as far as in our obedience. Again, what God is saying is, is, yeah, there may be some things that you don't know, but you're at least responsible to obey what you do know. And a lot of times, the interesting thing as Christians is we're so often concerned about the unrevealed will of God, the things that we don't know. But yet the reality is, is look, there's a whole lot here that's revealed that I'm still not obeying perfectly. And I find a lot of times that God is saying, listen, you're so concerned about this or that or all these things you don't know. Why don't you focus more on what's clearly revealed? Why don't you obey what's evident, what's clearly written in my word? Put your emphasis there on obeying what the word of God says. And here's the interesting thing, that when we obey what God does show to us very clearly, the amazing thing is the Bible also says to us this in the Psalms, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And as you fear God and you reverence God and you obey God's word, it's amazing how then he, he, he reveals at times other things and he begins to show us other things. Sometimes we're saying, God, show me this, show me that. God's saying, how about you just do what I already showed you first? Are you obeying my word? Are you following what it says, the things I have clearly revealed to you? These things are written because we have a responsibility. The idea here is to obey what has been given to us in Revelation. And that's important for us. You know, that we obey, instead of, look, don't, don't be one of these Christians that gets caught up in looking for all the, the secret mysteries. Well, I wonder what the, you know, what, what the Hebrew code is behind Deuteronomy 30. Maybe we can find, you know, Osama bin Laden in there or something. Or How about you just obey what the Bible says? Obey what the English says. Don't worry about the code in the Hebrew. Are you obeying what the English says? What's clearly written? That's hard enough for me, I find. That's enough of a challenge. Just obeying what's clearly written. And, and I'll tell you something. This is a wonderful thing too from the perspective of not just reading and obeying God's word for ourselves and our spiritual lives, but I think it's a wonderful thing from a teaching perspective as well. If you teach and you want to share the word of God, listen, you don't need to be finding mysteries, telling people fancy revelations. You know, I, I want to share the word of God. Let me find some really interesting revelation that no one else has ever found before. L listen, People need to hear the truth. There's a lot that's revealed that people just need to hear clearly and to understand and be challenged to obey what's clearly written. And the wonderful thing is, is when, when we begin to do that and we live that way and we teach and communicate that way, something begins to happen where somebody says, hey, I can teach people too then. If all I got to do is read what God's clearly revealed and say this is what that means and this is how we should obey that, then all of a sudden, I can teach the Bible too. I guess I can teach the Bible to my kids and to my wife and to my neighbors and to my friends. And all of a sudden, people realize that the Christian faith isn't this mysterious, esoteric thing. It's a very practical, nuts and bolts thing of obeying the Word of God, what's clearly revealed, living it out in obedience. And again, just I love the, the exhortation here. The secret things, listen, let, let God be God. But the things which are revealed, that is what does belong to us and to our children, that we may do the words of the law. And it shall come to pass, verse 1, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind, you remember them among the nations where the Lord your God drives you. Again, this is referring to the dispersions that would happen 
in Babylon as the, the Jews were dispersed at times throughout history after 70 AD when they were conquered by the Romans and the city was destroyed. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today and your children with all your heart and with all your soul that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So now God, after warning them, listen, if you disobey, there'll be consequences. You'll be dispersed. You'll be scattered among other nations. You'll be uprooted from the land. But notice, those things were intended to be healthy consequences what to help them come to their senses. As they were in those foreign lands, then struggling and realizing, why did we forsake the goodness of serving God? It was so much better when we were in the will of God, in the land where we were supposed to be. And like the prodigal that had a blessed life under his father's boundaries and care, but decided, give me my inheritance. And he went to a foreign land and squandered his father's wealth and wanted to follow the dictates of his own heart. And it ended up running out of all of his resources real quick and finding himself in the midst of a famine doing what? Feeding pigs and then being so hungry he starts eating the pig slop himself. And it's when he starts to eat the pig slop it says this, and he came to his senses and he said, man, my father's servants don't even live like this. They live, but my father's servant, I was a son. What am I doing eating pig slop? Why did I leave the safe, wise, healthy boundaries of what God had given to me? That was a good life. And that's when he came to his senses and remember he turned tail and he went back home humbly and repentant. And what did his father do? Sorry, get out of here. No, his father was waiting with open arms to embrace him back and restored him. And, get, and here this speaks now of the restoration of God. God says when you're in that land and you call to mind from that place where you've been driven. And he says, verse two, when you return to the Lord your God, aren't you glad that we can, though we turn away, that we can always return to the Lord? Aren't you so glad there's always that opportunity to return back to the Lord I'm sure in this room there are testimonies, there are stories of, of people who've turned away from the Lord, but yet God gave you the opportunity to return. And when you realize that you return to the Lord, notice one indication when somebody truly returns to the Lord, verse 2, and you obey his voice. That's how you can tell when someone's truly returned to the Lord. They begin to obey God's voice. It's not what they say with their words. I'm repenting. I'm turning back. Listen, repentance is seen. It's not talked about. You don't even have to say, I repent. The Bible says, bear forth fruits worthy of repentance. You'll tell when a heart's repentant because people start obeying God. They start obeying God's voice. And he says, when you return and you begin to obey his voice according to what I command you, with all your heart and with all your soul, there's passion for obedience unto God, that the Lord your God, beautiful, verse 3, restoration, this is God's restorative power, he'll bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you. How wonderful. Gather you again from the nations where the Lord has scattered you. And God has done that multiple times. He did it in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. He's done it throughout history. We've already began to see God restoring the Jews back to their land. Verse 4, if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts from under heaven, there the Lord your God will gather you from there and he will bring you and the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you 
and multiply you more than your fathers and the Lord your God notice will circumcise your heart he'll cut away that which is not tender and unsensitive he'll cut that away and the heart of your descendants and notice to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live and also the Lord will put all these curses on your enemies on those who hate you and persecute you and you verse 8 will again obey the voice of the Lord to do all his commandments which I command you today so he speaks of this regathering back to the land how God would bring them back in compassion and again even in this very time historically we have already began to see part of what's described there in verse 5 the Lord bringing them back to the land the Jews they once possessed and prospering them and multiplying them in 1948 when God brought the Jews back to their land a sociological miracle and we've seen a partial fulfillment of this already beginning to happen miracle of miracles of God obeying or not obeying but God honoring his word throughout human history and fulfilling this promise to his own people as they turn their hearts back to him and back to his land, God's already began. And listen, most of the Jews haven't even returned with a spiritual faith in God. God's done this for a remnant of many, understand, many unbelieving, ungodly Jews. This will find its fullest fulfillment in the time of the kingdom age when it completely happens, when the Jews recognize at the second coming Jesus as their Messiah and realize and then turn their hearts back to God and then the fullest fulfillment of this will happen in its complete sense as God brings the elect from the four corners of the earth but how beautiful to see God doing this and not only that but verse 6 and verse 7 and 8 describe how God works in the heart to change a heart he says God will circumcise the heart will cut away all the junk and will restore a new love for God back into a life and you'll begin again to obey the voice of the Lord and he'll prosper you again think of that after their disobedience God says I'll prosper you I'll make you love me with a renewed passion why because Jesus said he who's forgiven much loves much and what a wonderful thing to know that even after a person turns away from God as the Jews turn that God can not only draw a person back leave the door open but he can restore in such a way that they can come back with an incredible love for God and and God puts that love in their heart he circumcises their heart for them God says listen I'm going to do surgery on your heart and I'll give you a love for me and you'll have a fresh obedience towards my voice and man what a wonderful encouragement to recognize the power of God to take failures who are repentant and to restore us and to restore us back in a way where we're brought into right relationship with God if that be true for Israel under the old covenant how much more through the grace of Jesus Christ is that available for us let's stand let's pray